Welcome to this episode of Sweat the Technique. My guests today are Matt Lowry and Steve Cavino, and they run a school, just maybe not the kind of school you're thinking about. Matt is the Academy Director at Atlanta United's Youth Academy. Atlanta United is a Major League Soccer franchise, and Steve is the under-17 head coach there. And their job is to design a school for soccer players, to take promising athletes at 9 or 12 or 14 and turn them into world-class athletes. And I was excited to talk to them because, one, I think they're really good at what they do, and what they do is similar to and different from running other long-term learning-focused ventures like schools and other things. So Matt, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Uh, Great. So Matt, let's start with you if you don't mind. Welcome. For starters, just tell us a little bit about the Academy. How does it work? How often and for how long do you work with players? What are some of your maybe success points, players who've really done well under your tutelage? Yeah, we've been alive and kicking for about seven years now. So we'll hit our eighth season this August. We have multitude of teams. We generally start at 10, 11, 12 years old is when our earliest groups will come in and, and start to compete within the academy. They train here, they play games. We handle a lot of that for them. And then it'll go all the way until essentially they graduate high school, go into college, or the special ones go into the pros. And we have a reserve team, professional team, as well as the, the top team that plays within the MLS. So a lot of different pathways, a lot of different kids. Each kid kind of finds their own way. We do our best to try to support them, educate them, challenge them, and get them to be the best version of themselves. And don't be shy. You've had a couple of guys who do play for Atlanta United's first team. You've had a couple of guys make national teams. You want to just talk about a couple of those success cases? Yeah, we're in a great place right now. It's a really exciting place because we just kind of graduated probably our first group that started at U12. Myself and Steve Cavino were actually two of the coaches involved with that early U12 group back in 2016, 2017, and we've gotten some top talent from it. So Caleb Wiley, I think, is the name that everyone knows right now within the MLS circles. He just got his first cap with the U.S. national team. He got in against a scrimmage against Mexico, and he just got back as well from the U20 World Cup, where he had four excellent games playing for them. So he's 18 years old now, playing for the first team, getting tons of minutes, starts at left winger or left back. I'm really proud of him. Some other names are Johnny Fortune. Right now, he's with the Trinidad national team. He's only 20 years old, joined our academy at age 15 from North Carolina, and then came all the way through. Noah Cobb, coming from Chattanooga, Tennessee, joined us at 14. He's only 17 years old now, but he's already gotten some minutes with the first team. So it's an exciting place. And so, Matt, if you're the principal of the school, Steve, you're the head teacher. You coach the U-17s, which is right before guys go pro. So maybe you could just start us off talking a little bit about when you're running a training session and you know, you're thinking about developing elite athletes, what's on your mind when you design what happens on Tuesday afternoon for a group of guys who are that good, who are trying to get to the highest levels? Yeah, so we work off a curriculum that's always fluctuating, it's always moving. But based off that curriculum, if we have a principal that we work with, say it's a uh, finding a running player in behind the last line. We start there and then we work with our periodization to see. We just define that term periodization. Basically, how much you run through that training session, how many high-level sprints you have, how much distance you cover. But typically, if it's earlier in the week, it's probably not so much. If it's getting closer to game time, it's a little bit lighter, right? But from that training session, we're always pretty much focused on our top prospects and how can we manipulate that training session to be around them. So say we have a really good 
left winger and the principal is finding a running player in behind the last line, working on his timing of his movement, how he runs and the different cues that are associated with trying to receive a ball behind the last line. So yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of work, but we try our best to make sure that the top prospects are always a little bit of the focus. Let me throw out a question. Either you can answer this one. Uh, Steve, you mentioned periodization, and I think that raises an issue that might be surprising to some people. I think when some people imagine, you know, a pro athlete training academy, they might just imagine that like guys work themselves into the ground. But one of the things that you think about is actually there's a maximum amount of time that guys can be on the field that we have to make sure the guys don't get hurt by overplaying. And so I'm guessing a lot of what you do is to try and figure out how to max maximize learning in a finite amount of time, either by doing things off the field that make players better, faster, or by making every minute when guys are on their feet more productive. You mind just talking a little bit about that challenge, about the idea that more is not necessarily better? Yeah, from the coaching side of it, it's a lot of video with the guys, whether that be before training or after training. We do a lot of you know scouting reports on opponents to give them a little bit more prepared going into training. We have an individual development program that takes place about 45 minutes before training most weeks. And the kids can come out. It's usually, you know, a little bit of a lighter session, about 45 minutes before the practice starts. And, you know, just working on different techniques that are a little bit more specific to their position. So if it's defending, maybe it'd be 1v1 defending or clearing balls from inside the box that it's a little bit lower on the work rate, but really, really focused and individualized kind of towards their technique. Matt, Steve has used a couple words that are familiar to schools, individualization, curriculum, maybe when you talk about video. You even just talked about homework there. I don't know if guys get homework. So there are just a lot of parallels between school and the kind of school that you run. What are some of the things you're betting on in your mind? What matters when developing young athletes, especially you know when you've got young athletes for several years and you're trying to take the long view to making them great? Yeah. At the end of the day, Doug, we are a school. I think the subject we teach is, is soccer. And that gets screwed a little bit that, you know, we're teaching a sport at the end of the day. We deal with the same ideas as schools. How do we put a curriculum in place to, to make sure that players can learn over a series of years, you know, two, three, four, five years? The most interesting piece for us is the mental capacity of these players, not just to learn quickly, just to adapt to different surroundings. When we have a player who is doing well in one environment, guess what? You get moved into the next environment very quickly. We always want these players challenged. So that ability for the mind to adapt quickly, it's not just sitting at a desk and the ability to recall information, it's kinesthetic learning. So they actually have to put their body into a scenario where their brain is seeing certain cues, reading certain things, and their body has to react to that. So it's a lot for them. But really the key is what is their mental capacity to continue to learn, continue to learn quickly through challenges and to stay determined. The players that tend to be the best at 17, 18 are the ones that sacrifice. They're the ones that are not going out with their friends as much. They're not going to parties as much as young kids. They sacrifice little bits of social events here and there, and they're training, and they're working on their craft, and they're asking to do more. Steve and I had Caleb from age 11 all the way to 17, and even now, he'll beat my door down and say, I, I would like to train. I have a couple of days off from the first team. You know, these are kids that become obsessed with the task of training and obsessed with the task of getting better. Super interesting. Can we just talk about Caleb for a second as just a typical, like, here's a kid who's made it, he's world-class. He went to your school. 
Steve, did you coach Caleb early on? Yeah, so I coached Caleb at U12 for a little bit with Matt. And then at U14, Matt was coaching the U15s and Caleb was obviously up there. So I didn't see too much of him. Matt stole him, stole him away, but <laughs> deservedly so. But Caleb was a really talented player. But I think the interesting thing about Caleb and Matt, obviously you can talk a little bit more about it, but Caleb was always the quiet kid. He was always the one that kind of flew under the radar. He wasn't always like the standout player who's you know, dribbling people and finishing upper corner or like really, really great 1v1. He was always just very steady and did everything really, really well. And obviously, he's a student of the game. He would study it nonstop. And like Matt said, he put the work in. And I think that's first and foremost, for me at least. So a parent standing on the sideline watching a U12 game five or six years ago, watching Caleb. And if that parent had picked out one kid, it was like, that kid's great. It might not have been Caleb. Is that kind of, I'm, I'm just curious of that in the aggregate, are the guys who you would guess at U12 and U14, are they the guys that make it? Which guys do make it? Would you be able to predict? If you took your U14s now, who's going to be the next one? We wouldn't be able to predict. And I think we would love to be able to predict. We would love to think that we were able to predict. I think we as a coaching staff and I'm vulnerable with this as well. We get excited about a young 13-year-old. We start seeing the future, you know, the Ferrari, the money, you know, it's all coming and we cannot predict that. And I remember being on a call during the pandemic. Our director was good enough to start to link us with other directors a lot in England. And we got on a call with Alex Inglethorpe, who is a director at Tottenham. And he just said straight up, listen, Michael Owen was the best youth player I've ever seen in my life. And we didn't know until 15. And he said that was the earliest that we knew this kid was different. He said every other player, Harry Kane included 17, 18 we still had questions. So it's all about continuing with the patience, continuing with the process. And, and the ones that, again, to go back to that obsessed with training piece, that obsessed with getting better piece, those are the ones that continue to push. The player at 14 believes he's the best in the world. At 16, they probably haven't put the work in to be there. So that's why that mental determination is just so important. I think what you're describing is actually kind of a really interesting paradox, which is one of the ways that your school is different from a lot of schools is that I think you guys do a great job of being attentive to everyone and trying to make sure that every player that comes through your academy is honored and respected by the teaching and you try and have them end up in a place where the game is good for them. But really from an economic perspective, your goal is to develop the top kids in the class. But you actually don't know who the top kids in the class are going to be for much of their interaction there. Like if you guessed, you would be wrong. I think that's kind of a fascinating paradox. I'm wondering if uh, maybe Matt from an academy level and Steve from like a day-to-day -day coaching level, talk a little bit about how you think about that paradox of my job is to make the very best kids in this program world-class. And I don't know who that's going to be. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest not problems in youth soccer because it is what it is, but worldwide, every academy in the world at under 11, under 12, 90% of those players on that roster are born in January, February, or March of that birth year. So quarter one, that's where they all are. And we all know, we all know by 18, it will get evened out. And the quarter twos, the quarter threes, the quarter fours, the kids born in December, such as Caleb, they're going to find it through their own process. And we know this. We know that we're going in and, and picking the best talent in the area. And we know that 75% of that population probably isn't going to make it all the way through the system. But within that environment, we just try to create the most, not always competitive, while that's important, but the best learning environment possible. And if you have the best 20 and they're pushing every single day, if five of them continue all the way through, that foundation, that backpack of knowledge that they have through the system is going to make them really, really special. So it's not a perfect situation. It's not a perfect process, 
But at the end, if you can be one of the ones that stick it out, the amount of knowledge, the amount of tools you have in your backpack as a player, you can handle anything. Can I just try and summarize what I think you just said, which is that one of the things that data tells you is that at a younger age, the kids who were born earlier, who are in the first few months of that group, are likely to pop because they're comparatively older than other kids. They're going to physically look better. And you know this. And so you're deliberately trying to look and compensate for that and actually look for kids who are younger, who are really good. But it's still really hard to pay attention to that. And Caleb, interestingly, was a December birthday, which means he's the very youngest. And in some ways, maybe you're saying also that that's a gift in the long run to be the kid who has to struggle a little bit more to keep up. Absolutely. When Caleb was U14 and I selfishly stole him from Steve and pulled him up to the U15s, he wasn't just playing one year up. He was really playing two years up because he was playing with a lot of quarter one players born in 2003. He was born in December of 2004. So we try to keep all of this in our in our knowledge. We try to understand and be intentional with all of the players. But the reality in a competitive environment such as ours when you walk in and you look at all of those 12-year-olds, you know that one of those from October, November, December, fast forward five years, is going to be special. You don't know which one yet. So you have to take the performers. You have to take the ones that are the, the best of the bucket at that time. In the back of your head, you're knowing and looking and, and kind of watching within your own environment, within your backyard and within the local clubs around you okay, what late bloomer is going to start to push and really be special at 14, 15? I would say Noah Cobb, who's a real special talent, plays center back, has gotten some time with our first team. When he came in, this scrawny little kid, born in July, kind of middle tier. But when he started to come in and get around the environment, Coach Steve was, was part of his process with the 14s and 15s. You just started to fly. So different timing for different kids, depending on where they sit. Steve, let me throw a question your way. Because last time I was down there, I was watching you train. Great training session, as always, by the way. The height and size difference between the biggest kid on the team and the smallest kid on the team, I think it might have been the U14s or U15s last time I was down there. You know, like there's a kid out there who's twice as big as another kid. And I think what you're saying is you have to watch, especially for the littler kid, because in the end, the physical is going to even out. And he may be the most talented one, even though he doesn't look like it. But you're also saying, I think, Matt, you were saying the kids who make it are the kids who persist psychologically. How do you think, Steve, about coaching that kid who's a little bit smaller, who's developmentally behind, who you see some talent in, but maybe he doubts himself, maybe he struggles to like believe that he's going to make it? Just thinking about some of the ways that you shape the psychological environment for players like that. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, especially when you're dealing with a player that's maybe a little bit under developed, you try and convince them that they're kind of surviving in that environment because they're picking up ways to figure out how to combat a bigger, stronger, faster player. You're having them pick up little cues like, oh, maybe he's left-footed and I can put him on his right and keep him going one way. So you almost kind of start to teach those players like, yeah, hey, you're small right now, but at some point you're going to be big. At some point you're going to be bigger, you're going to be faster, you're going to be stronger. But how can you right now almost outthink your opponent? Can you be smarter? Can you study the game more? Can you, like I was saying, pick up little things that can help you in a challenging environment? And then, you know, it's the persistence of trying to get better at all those things and working your butt off day in and day out. And like Matt was saying, Caleb Wiley was one of those players. Noah Cobb was another one of those guys. We have some other guys that are with our second team, Johnny Vial, Alan Carlton, and some other players coming through the ranks that were never the bigger or stronger guys, but they always thought the game quicker than everybody else because they studied it and they watched it nonstop. So 
I think just finding those little ways to, I want to say cheating, but... Uh, Finessing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Find those little ways to be a little bit smarter than your opponent. And those guys that persist are the ones who, at least what we've seen, are the ones who push through and make it. I have a great story about Johnny Biel. It was one of the first U12 sessions. We had the cones all lined up. And we were going to do relay races. And Johnny Biel is four foot nothing. This little tiny kid, wonderful soccer player, but didn't have a physical bone on his body. And he's standing next to, you know, this overgrown 12-year-old with an overactive pituitary gland that's just ready to take off. And you look over and Johnny's just nudging the starting cone with his foot. (laughs) (laughs) And when we blew the whistle to start the race, he was already five feet in front of everyone else. It's great. And no one had noticed. So you start to notice that, okay, Johnny knows he's not the fastest, but he's going to be smarter than the others. And even from age 11, he kind of had that, you know, Steve talks about cheating. You know, he had that little bit like, I'm going to win. I don't know how, I don't know if I'm going to break the rules, but I'm going to find a way to win. And and that takes these players somewhere. Love that story. Can I ask about the flip side? So I think one of the things you're saying is that what seems like a curse is a gift in the long run, which is like, you're the littlest kid out there. It seems like it's an extra burden to bear. It is probably psychologically and you have to be comfortable failing. But in the long run, the little things you learn when things even out can actually be your gift. On the flip side of that, there's the kid you talked about who lost the race to Johnny Vial, Matt, <laughs> who develops early physically and is fast and athletic and his physical talent develops early. And I've pet theory. I think that kid is really easy to miscoach because you can kind of let them get away with things that will cause them to be very successful now. But when it all evens out and everyone is really good, they will have not learned things that they need to learn. And you might argue that's kind of endemic in sports coaching. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how to coach kids who show their talent early to make sure that that doesn't become a drag on them. It doesn't keep them from learning the things that they need to learn. Yeah, that's a really difficult one, though, to be honest. I think the easy solution for us is when we have a player who is getting away with things because of physical gifts, we try to move them up in age group and we try to get them around players that physically you know, are going to give him the same challenge that he would get. The problem can be psychological. You know, if the player is not ready socially to be up with an older age group, that can be an issue. So it's really difficult balance. But we just try to look at it as, look, if you can get a big, fast, strong kid against a big, fast, strong kid, they're both going to have to learn. Whether one's a defender, one's an attacker, they're both going to have to learn. So Steve can probably speak more to this. But even within the training session, how we match players up, Steve has a little 2v2 drill. He might have one on the right side that's got a lot of minis going against each other and one on the left side that has maybe the, the players that are a little bit more full grown and are a bit more gone in, in their physical growth. So you can find ways to manipulate it to make sure players are challenged, but it's a competitive game. And if the, the opponent doesn't give you the right challenge, you won't learn from it. Yeah, just building off of that a little bit. I think most of my time when building a training session is based on those matchups that Matt was talking about. Matt, when we worked with the U12s a little bit, there'd be multiple sessions where we had some of the bio-banded players doing a 5v5 possession activity while the early developers are working something else, but just trying to put them in the best spot where they're getting the best matchup and then looking to see uh, the teams even. Is this one team going to get murdered in a small side game? I think that becomes really, really important. 
And it almost needs to be down to a science for a training session. Steve, real quickly, define biobanded. Players that are put together based on how developed they are. You want to put probably bigger, stronger guys together in a group. And then, you know, every once in a while, your mini-me's are battling against each other and then kind of bringing them back into a full session. Just want to shift a little bit to the topic of culture. It's one of the things that stands out at me most when I visit Atlanta United is guys practice four days a week with you typically. Is that right? Four or five, yeah. Four or five days a week. That's a lot of soccer. And you could imagine it being a drain. As you were saying, Matt, they give up a lot. They give up a lot of their social life. A lot of cases, they don't have a normal school experience because they're out of school at two. And they, you know, you could imagine it becoming a fairly joyless experience. But every time I'm down there, the training sessions are really upbeat and fun. And as soon as you show up on campus and players shake your hand and they introduce themselves, can you talk a little bit about building culture and what you think about when you build an organizational culture? And especially maybe Steve, you can start and talk a little bit about how you bring energy, positivity, and joyfulness to practice. And when like practices, there's some drudgery to it if you're 14 and you're doing this, you know, six and seven days a week. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the kids see us more than they see their parents. You know, they're around each other for so much, sometimes seven days out of the week. You know, we have one tournament where we go off for 11 days to either Florida or Dallas for G Cup. So they almost become brothers. I think the interesting part about building a culture where you want them to compete every single day against each other because we know that we want to develop professional players. But within that culture, the team environment becomes so important. Like you said, you want to keep it upbeat. You want to continue to, you know, yeah, if a kid goes and tackles his teammate, you want to make sure that, hey, at the end of the day, once the whistle is blown, you know, you guys are buddies afterwards. But I think Matt has created a great culture and it's a culture of continuously learning and trying to get better with that competitive aspect to it where the guys are trying to fight for spots. Some of them in the older age groups fight for contracts, which becomes really stressful and interesting, but they all do it within the aspect of trying to play for the club and play for the badge. And that's pretty much what we try and do every single day is teach them, hey, you know, you want to be on the first team field. You want to continue to develop and get to where you need to be. What are some phrases you find yourself saying to players to remind them of culture to either, you know, like you've had kind of like a tense toe-to-toe with a guy, you're fighting hard, right? It's almost a fight. Or, you know, maybe there's like a lack of humility or what are just, you know, some like moments where you're talking to players where you're intentional about shaping their psychological outlook? We have a saying in the academy, it's take out the trash. And that is a saying that Matt kind of brought down when he's took over as the uh, academy director and there's multiple meetings to that but take out the trash is something hey you know this is your environment this is your workplace almost every single day keep it clean but also you know keep it clean on the field too with your teammates try not to swear as much try to continuously try and encourage your teammates you see a lot of kids that step into like leadership roles and it continues off the field too. And like I said before, these guys are buddies. Some of them are best friends and they'll continue to be best friends. But I would say take out the trash is something that we hear a lot, at least with the 17s and the 16s, some of the older kids. And that kind of translates into the way that they play and into some of the things that they do off the field as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I've been in this role for two years, but prior to that was Tony Annan, who did an amazing job of, of building a culture of respect. I think he's a guy from Newcastle, kind of went through a lot of the, the Premier League academy systems. He was a guy that just barely didn't make it pro and, and ended up coming over here for college. So he had a really clear sense of discipline, respect, that idea of coming up and shaking everyone's hand. Our players do it every single day. They greet every staff member. 
will greet every stranger who shows up at the training ground. Doesn't matter what you're wearing. They'll just come up to you and shake your hand. And that's who they are. And that's a big thing that we wanted to keep alive. But it's Tony's brainchild. And it was a really cool way to create a culture of respect and honesty and openness. Hi, my name is, you know, I'm here to work. But, you know, there's also that element of human to it. And I think Steve hit the nail on the head. We want the players to feel that they are part of the process. They don't come to Atlanta United every day. They are Atlanta United every single day. And who they act on this training ground, who they act outside. You know, we, we want our kids to wear their uniforms, wear Atlanta United gear, wear Atlanta United t-shirts, go into the grocery store, going out in the community, be proud of the club that you're from. And we are part of an amazing club with already a, a short but incredible history. And we want the kids to buy into that. You know, you are not part of Atlanta United. You represent Atlanta United. So take out the trash, do the right thing, shake people's hands, you know, work your butt off on the field, but be respectful at the same time because it's bigger than you. You're representing an entire city and an entire club. So there's a little bit of a weight and pressure put on the kids with this kind of chat, but we do it all the time and they need to feel it. And we hope they do. So we've been comparing your work to a school more or less. And one thing we haven't talked about is the tests. And obviously the tests are a little bit different, but you know, you coach players in practice, but you also coach them in games. Imagine the games are intense. Do you mind just talking a little bit about how you think about coaching players in matches? What are you trying to accomplish? What can you not accomplish in terms of coaching during a game? Maybe Steve, you want to start and then Matt, you can go second. Yeah. So I think every game that we go into, it's usually based off what we had worked on that previous week. So we're not just saying, okay, here's the big test. Here's the big match on the weekend. I want you to do everything that's within our curriculum. We're working on building out of the back that week. That becomes the focus. Maybe it's because the team is pressing us really high. So we kind of want to gear a lot of our teaching towards that principle and a soccer game can become very very hectic very emotional throughout the entire match but I think the biggest thing that at least I try and do with the U17s is maybe pick three things that we want to look to get out of that like you said test on the weekend and try and continually improve as much as we can and try and have a lot of our teaching and a lot of our coaching from the sidelines be geared towards those tasks. Quick follow-up. You're both competitive guys and you love to win. And so you could set yourself like, here are the three things we want to work on building out of the back and we want to you know, maintain possession. And then you walk out on the field and you want to win and you want to do well as a coach. Are there things that you do to maintain your own self-discipline to just keep your focus on your learning goals during a match? I just imagine that has to be a constant challenge as a coach, which is you want to think about long-term during the match but you really, really, really want to win. Any thoughts on how you keep yourself focused on learning objectives during a highly competitive interaction? It's really difficult because like you said, we do want to win. Matt had a saying that I think he either took from a different coach or from somebody else down the line, but the coach should always be in the shadows. And I think the players need to be in the light and the coach in the shadows needs to be the one that can kind of bring the light to the players. And we try our best to stay within that. And obviously, it can become very emotional here and there. But I think always having that type of mindset is how can we help the players on the field during the match? And if that's always at the forefront of our brain, then the kids will be successful, whether it be on the field, off the field, whatever it is. So I think it's something that I try my best to stay within. But every once in a while, it becomes very uh, competitive. 
for sure. Matt, if you watch a match on TV, people are always speculating about like what happens in the locker room at halftime. And I've always been skeptical that what they say happens in the locker room at halftime actually is what happens in the locker room at halftime. What should happen in your mind in the locker room at halftime of a sporting event for elite athletes trying to become great? The game is always the most fun for the players. A lot of times it's the most fun for coaches as well it's it's the moment where you get to say okay everything we worked on the past week the past month is it going to come to fruition here it's a great challenge as teachers and as players competing within the game the emotions that go into it i think we learn a lot in those moments we know there's going to be bad moments from players from coaches from teams you know there's going to be really good moments we try to look at it a longer process and to answer your question about halftime the players need to give us something it is not a coach-centric game this is not a game where we can call timeouts 15 minutes in when we're down 2-0. we got to deal with it. The players got to deal with it. We're not able to really stop the game or really add our input in except for that beautiful moment of halftime. So knowing that the game is player-centric, knowing that the players have control of the game, we want to hear from them first. So that's a big academy piece for us is we give the players a moment. It's very emotional. Those first two minutes when they're coming off, they're drinking water, they're doing what they need to do physically, maybe talking to the trainer very quickly. The coaches will get together, talk about their one or two points. But the first question is always, okay, players, what do you think? What did you see? And maybe we'll start that a little bit more intentionally. Hey, the buildup, what are we noticing from the opponent's press? Or maybe it's quite general. Guys, how did you feel? What did you think about that first 45 minutes? And getting some feedback from them. And I do think that our staff does a wonderful job of having their own ideas, but also being able to take some ideas from the players and mesh the two. Because I think when you take the coach and the player, you end up with something pretty good. Do you talk to the players at all about how to do that well? Like, so players are coming off the field, they're emotional, right? It's intense. You're down 2-1. Someone's made a mistake. It'd be really easy through the best of intentions for people to be counterproductive in that setting. One player always talks when there are other guys who should talk. A guy makes a comment that's very accusational of other teammates in a non-productive way. Do you talk to players at all about how to embrace that role of shaping the thinking at halftime and productive ways? Does it happen naturally? I think it happens organically over time because this is a normalized process for us. So at U12 and U13, the players know that, look, if I lose or win this game, it's okay. Still going to ice cream after it. I'm still going to be okay. I'm still going to go to school the next day. At 17, 18, it starts to be really competitive and really meaningful. You know, is that college coach going to see me? Something could happen here with my career if I do well or play poorly. So that emotionality of the circumstance can change as they get older, but hopefully by the time they're older, they know that the coach is going to start with us. And we're really big on our non-verbals. If a coach is leaning over everyone going, what did you guys think? Clearly this wasn't great, but lowering yourself down to their level, making sure that the players are seated, making sure they have water, making sure they've had that two or three minute rest to kind of bring their emotions down for a second, bring their adrenaline down for something. And starting with calm, starting with, okay, we're down three, nothing. It's all right. What do we need to do next? From your comment of, does the same player speak? A lot of times they do. And openly, maybe we need to do a better job of how we pick on certain players, how we cold call certain players. But we also want to bring up the leaders and we want to know who is going to step up. And when things get tough, who is going to have a response and who is going to help the guys next to them that can separate players. So we want to see that. We want to see who steps up as well. So there's a balance to it. During the halftime speech, like Matt said, you want to make sure that they're calm, really important at getting down to their level and asking them first, you know, hey guys, what do you think? And 
it's pretty interesting when you start to build that culture where they feel very open about you know sharing and you build that type of environment where no question is a bad question. You start to learn a lot about the kids. And like Matt said, yeah, the leaders do start to come out. But I think you create that type of environment where everybody feels okay to speak on a certain topic. And we do do a good amount of cold calling. And maybe it's that guy who's not really making eye contact with you to make sure they're switched on and that they're paying attention. But it's all about just giving that type of power to the players to speak during halftime and see what did you guys see? You're the ones going through it. Super interesting. In wrapping up, you guys have both been doing this for a long time, six and seven years, I think, at the academy, which is fantastic. First thing I think about that is like lucky guys on the team, because I think you guys are so intentional about what you do. I'm wondering if you could each close by maybe thinking about one thing that you've learned in the six or seven years that you've been doing this, maybe something you do differently or think about differently from when you first arrived that seems important to you. So maybe Matt, you want to go first and then Steve close us out. I go back to the mental determination. You know, as you come into this role, starting as a U12 coach and moving along the same way that I did in the same way that Steve is now with the 17s, you start to understand that the best ones at 11, 12, 13 aren't the best ones at 18. And there's an immediate scratch your head moment where you say, well, why is that? You know, what is it about these competitive kids that the one that is scraping and fighting and clawing just to get a moment with the team to just get that starting lineup to just be able to get into the game? That's the kid that at the end of the row, you really want on your side. And I think that mental determination piece is so fascinating. There was a really cool article that came out recently about the German Bundesliga and some of the work they're doing within the academies there. And they had a little bit of a math equation. It was basically natural talent plus physical ability times mental determination. So automatically, if you have all the natural ability in the world, all the physical ability in the world, that's only going to get you so far. If you actually have this mental capacity to continue to go and work and work and push, that's going to increase your likelihood of being a pro astronomically. And so we're constantly looking at, all right, what's the kid that's going to do more? Who's going to push? You know, at the end of the day, that's the guy that we want on our side. Not exactly rocket science, but it makes it for a real interesting way of looking at development. Can you coach it? Do you try to coach it? Is it just something that has to be like, I'm not going to try and make you want it. You have to want it. Or are there things that you do to try and push kids to want it a little bit more? Given that it seems like you kind of think that that's the biggest driver. I think the culture can shape it. I think at the end of the day, if you have a group of 20 Two might have it and the other 18 may not. But if the culture is really intentional, if it's competitive in the right ways, but supportive in the right ways, I think you get five rather than just two. You know, and I have something written on my board. It's consistency of efforts plus perseverance. So being consistent and persevering, that's grit for us. That's resilience for us. That's the determination that we're talking about. And so we're constantly looking at those moments. But I think if you get the culture right, you get the most bang for your buck. Love that. Steve, what's your six-year lesson? Very similar to Matt. I'm a huge, huge believer in what you put in, you get back out. And the players that put in the work, guys who are taking extra shots after practice and are constantly asking for video sessions or individualized video. It's those guys who live and breathe the game, but most importantly, the ones that want to put in the work to get everything back out of the game. And that with a very good support system is huge. The life of a soccer player, even an academy player can just be up and down and ebbs and flows. And the ones that have that type of sport system or uh, whether it be parents or best friends or even a lot of times teammates, 
guys who can help you through those tough times because there's going to be so many of them throughout their career, I think is huge. But yeah, like Matt said, I think we're both very similar in that what you put in is what you get back out. And that hard work is going to be the key to success. Gents, thank you both. It's been a really interesting conversation. Appreciate your letting us look inside the life of the Academy, your soccer school in Atlanta. Matt Lowry, Steve Cavino, thanks for taking time to talk. Thank you, Doug. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Doug.